All right, one more time. Good evening. Great, we're alive, awake, enthusiastic. My name is Chris. If we haven't met, I am the youth pastor here at Lang Valley Vineyard. And no, I'm not about to do a keynote speech. Um, eight people have told me already I look like Steve Jobs, so that's cool. And uh, But anyway, it is uh, my great delight to tell you that you're so welcome here this evening to Lang Valley Vineyard. Um, if we have not met, I'm Chris not Steve Jobs, and I'm so glad that you're here. Tonight, we're going to speak on the topic of destiny. I know something light for a Sunday evening. And we want to unpack the idea of what destiny actually is. As we start this conversation, I think it's fair to say that oftentimes we ask at some point in our lives what our purpose or our calling or our destiny is. Regardless of the language wrapped around it, we tend to ask this question. Most people will agree, and someone made this quote, that the two most important days of your life is the day that you're born, and then secondly, the day you, re- you realize why. Why are we here on this earth? What are we built to do? Why, what are we created to do? I don't know if you've ever um, met one of your heroes before. Um, I tend to have this idea that some people have this just extraordinary, amazing destiny placed over their lives. They're like these amazing people that God just chooses out of one in like a thousand, and they're the ones who get to live these extraordinary, amazing, extravagant lives. And then there's the rest of us. And we have a tagline on our website that says, Ordinary People Living Extraordinary Lives. But sometimes I get in the mode where I see these people, maybe they play guitar, maybe they stand on stages, maybe lead massive churches or even smaller churches, or maybe they're just people in different spheres of influence, and they just seem to have this thing about them, that they seem to have this incredible call upon their life. They seem to have this incredible destiny over their lives. In September of 2016, I had the experience of meeting one of my heroes. I had just moved to a church in the States. I was going to be working there for a year, and it was a big church. We had about 16,000 people going to it. I was in Seattle, and uh, we had around six different campuses. It, the course that I went to study, we had around 300 students, and a lot of people who actually moved there moved to get around the pastor who was leading the church. And if I'm being really honest, I kind of stumbled into this year of my life. That I'd never really truly set out to, to go there. It kind of just happened, and I understand there for longer than what I intended to be. But it was an amazing time and an amazing experience. And in my fourth week, I received a phone call to tell me that the pastor of the church wanted me to come around to his house and build a table tennis table. And uh, I was like, I was only four weeks there, so I wasn't totally there with the cultural awareness of how people interact with Americans. So I was like, I dead on. Like, you want me to go around this house and build a table tennis table? Like, this guy like speaks in front of a thousand people, I've wrote like four books, and you want me, just some guy from Lisbon, to go around this house and build a table tennis table? I was convinced someone was setting me up, like the, the Northern Irish kid has just moved to Seattle. Let's through some kind of wild joke and make him look like an idiot. I was convinced that's what it was going to be. And I often played this scenario through my head. Like, what would I do if I met one of my heroes? Like, what would I ask them? How would I interact with them? What would I say to them? Like, and I was always really confident we had these discussions, you know, like, what, like who are your heroes? What would you do if you met them? I'd be like, oh, like, I'd ask them to pray for me or, like, I'd tell them how much they impacted my life and all this kind of stuff. And when I arrived at the door of the house, um, I still thought it was a joke and... Surely enough, I knocked on the door with one of my friends, who also was a student there, and the guy opened the door, and it was him. And uh, I, I, I went completely silent, literally froze. He was like, hey, man. That's my terrible American accent. And I was like, I just froze. 
honestly, I think a little bit of pee came out. May have wet myself. I was so, so nervous. And I, that, that day, I literally built a table tennis in his garage, just helped him out, tied it around his house, chatted him a little bit. And what I began to learn as the conversation went on is I expected people like this who stand in front of thousands upon thousands of people who have impacted thousands of people around the globe would have this amazing God moment where God just placed something on their lap, packaged nicely, and said, here's what you're to do, go and do it. Or there's this massive thunderbolt that comes from heaven and speaks and says, this is what you're designed to do, go do it. But when I began to have conversation with him, which was kind of fleeting because I was really, like, table tennis is a re- like, table that are not easy to build. Like, they're pretty complicated. And, uh, and I was kind of flustered in the moment. But when we had the conversation, I learned that actually his journey to where he was, he, that he never set out to get to those moments. That was never an aim or a prize or something he was striving to do. Actually, he just wanted to love people and tell them about Jesus. And the most amazing thing around it is that actually when we dug into this story is that he was hired by the church when he was 19, but his job was to be a janitor. For five years, when he was hired at the church, he was a janitor. He literally cleaned the toilets. And a matter of 15 years later, he would be the lead pastor of the church. And what was amazing is that he never talked about this idea of this huge moment where it all became clear. It was just something that kind of happened and was unraveled. The amazing thing about destiny, and what I want to pose the question tonight, is that is destiny just something that comes extraordinarily to us? It comes down and cuts into the midst of our situation, into our circumstance, and into our life, and says, this is what you're to do? Or is it something that we actually gradually step into? And if so, how do we do that? And if it is something that we can actually step into, how do we become more aware of what that is? How can we get a better grasp of what destiny actually looks like? I think it's really easy as well that when we look at biblical characters, when we look at even the stories in the Bible, we are overwhelmed with these amazing people doing extraordinary things. It is oftentimes our instinct to compare our mundane and average to other people's significant and think that we're just not cut out for those sort of things. I want to talk tonight on the biblical character of the person of Moses. Moses, if you've been to Sunday school for like three weeks, you'll realize very fast he was quite a significant person in the Bible. In fact, he did some pretty incredible things. The Bible is full of stories in the life of Moses. He was born, sent on a river, raised in Pharaoh's house. Eventually, he was called through a burning bush that was not consumed, brought plagues upon the land, led the Israelites out of 430 years of slavery, parted the Red Sea, and the CV goes on of amazing and incredible things that he did. It's easy to look at him, admire him, but have the posture that we can never live a life that significant, that our destiny can never quite be that significant. But what we actually learn is that when we begin to look closer at the life of Moses, when we begin to actually look at the story of his life, we begin to see that actually it is the ordinary, everyday moments that is the special ingredient for God to speak and move and for us to step further into our destiny. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Exodus 3, verses 1 to 12. Exodus 3, verses 1 to 12. If you don't have your Bible, do not worry. I will read it out for you guys. Exodus 3, 1 to 12. Moses and the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law's, the priest of Midian. And he fled to the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel appeared to him, in flames and fire from within a bush. Moses saw 
through the bush and saw that it was on fire but did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over to this strange site. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals and place them where you're standing for it is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face immediately because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people of Egypt. I've heard them crying out from their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. And so I've came down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them out into the land, a good and spacious land, flowing with coffee and, I mean, milk and honey. Just making sure you're awake. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jeshubites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said, Who am I that I should go towards Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign that, is, that I have sent you, that you will bring your people out of Egypt and you will worship God on this mountain. In the next 20 minutes or so, I want to take this little passage of Scripture and I want to draw six points of how we step into our destiny that God has for us, how we move towards what God has for us, how we understand better what destiny and biblical destiny actually is, and how we can become more aware of what it actually is. Number one is found in, in the backstory. Before we get into the burning bush, it's important that we look at the context of Moses. See, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. He was a prince of Pharaoh. He was royalty, and therefore immediately significance was placed over his life. But before this burning bush happens, we realize that for 40 years, Moses has been tending a flock of sheep. For 40 years, he's been tending sheep that aren't even his home. The Hebrew translation makes us that this is occupation. It's culturally defining for who he is. And that's, that's true. I don't know if you've realized, when people ask you your name, what they pretty much will follow up with is, well, what do you do? Me and James play this game all the time, and we find ourselves in situations. We were once um, at a party, a birthday party, and uh, we were at the bar, and a girl came over to us and says, what do you do? And uh, we, say, we play this game all the time. We're like, well, if you can guess, we will buy you whatever you want. If you can guess what we do, we will buy you whatever you want. And every time, I tried this with someone else like three weeks ago, every time their first guess is hairdresser. Every time. I don't know what it is, but every time that's what they say. But there's something about what we do that builds a persona around us. People align it with who we are, and it becomes part of our identity. Moses, for the last 40 years, despite having this call of significance over his life, has been tending to just sheep. More so, what's even more embarrassing, what's even more denting to who he is, is that they are not even his own sheep. They are his father-in-law's sheep. What is unavoidable to point out here, and what is significant to be found in the context of that, in this, is that he was faithful with the small, the little, what seemed insignificant. It was the ordinary, overlooked context in which Moses encounters the extraordinary and the supernatural. 
We hear Bible stories of Moses' legacy. We rarely refer to these 40 years of serving someone else's sheep. I'm convinced that as we move towards our destiny, if we are too big to serve, then we're probably too small to lead. Moses goes from literally leading sheep in a field, and not to throw shots at sheep, but sheep are pretty dumb. Like, I have friends who own sheep, and they have found them, like, face down in tubs of diesel, like, thinking it was fondue. And he's left to look after these dumb, seemingly dumb animals. But he embraced the small. You see, for Moses, he understood that it was the everyday opportunity, not opposition. Thomas Edison has this quote, I love it. Opportunity is missed by most people because often dressed in overalls and looks like hard work. I'll say it again. Opportunity is often missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like hard work. Four years ago, before I was ever part of the team here, um, Andy, who's the lead pastor here, had a conversation with me and James where he invited us to come on as voluntary staff, which pretty much meant that we had a staff role, but we, that was kind of it. we were kind of held to that. There was no other kind of perks. It was We were in early stages of church planting. We didn't have a lot of money. And so he wanted to bring us on and to expose us to the life of church planting. And up until that point, I kind of had a bit of a radical conversion when I came to faith. I came to faith at like 17. And um, all my life, like first year in school, I was crippled with anxiety, unable to like speak, never mind get the French class. And um, when I was like in fifth year, I was like this, I was honestly so inside myself. The last thing that I ever wanted to do was communicate. And something happened whenever I came to faith in Jesus, where I just wanted to tell people about Jesus. There was like a standoff one day in my sixth form center in Lower Sixth, where I was standing on a chair telling my entire sixth form common room how much Jesus loved them. And uh, looking back on it now, um, I probably looked like a complete Muppet, but I fully went for it. I was really passionate. I want to go for it. And when Andy invited us to be around, I was just really passionate and really wanted to do stuff. And for those, like, two years before, I kind of just, like, traveled around a few churches. I was telling people about Jesus and just doing whatever it was. I was kind of running around doing that. And looking back on it, I probably made a ton of mistakes, and uh, I learned a lot through that hard way. But I remember my first um, day, Andy came to me. He's like, I have this opportunity for, for you and James. And uh, we were like, great. First Sunday, I, I showed up to church, and uh, Andy gave me my first job. And we were, we were in Hasm's Lane, and for you who are, are familiar with Hasm's Lane, we had a little uh, venue there. It had this little indented uh, door, so like there was like a little bit of shelter around the door. Some of you are laughing because you know immediately what I'm going to say if you were around that time. And uh, around the corner on Saturday nights, there was a few bars, so people would go to the bars, and they'd manage somehow, I don't know how, to make their way around to our venue. And uh, what they would do is they would deposit uh, their stomach and bladder contents in this little gap in the wall every week. I mean, every, it was like they were waiting for me every week. And my job, when I first came around, the opportunity that was presented to me, the first thing was to clean the sick and the pee off the step so that people could walk in through our church and not be knocked out with the aroma. And I have a pretty strong stomach. Like, I have a fairly strong stomach. And honestly, there was, like, some days where I was, like, tears tripping me. Um, like, I was fairly fresh from the night before and uh, not pleasant at all. But what happened there was there was an opportunity that began one of the most incredible journeys of my life. In fact, a journey that I am still on to this day, that realizing that one of the greatest privileges that you can ever have as a human is getting to serve and getting to lay down your life for the sake of others, getting to present yourself in 
situations that maybe aren't pretty, but to actually serve people. And it was a long journey for me to walk around, but one that I'm still on and still treasuring. For Moses, it was about being faithful and obedient with whatever was in front of him. Moses had the attitude of, 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 that was above tending the sheep. He never would have had encountered the presence and the voice and the invitation of God. God is often waiting to do something incredible and big in our lives, in our midst and in our communities, in our cities. And often he's just waiting for us to do something really small, like tend to sheep. Moving towards our destiny is, is not opposing and looking down upon our current, but embracing it, seeing it as opportunity and being faithful with it, regardless of the size of it. Point number one, faithful with the small things. Number two is found in, in verse three, if you have your Bibles. Verse three says this, I will go over to the strange site. Why does the bush burn and not burn up? Point number two, stay curious, stay alert. Throughout 40 years, Moses stayed curious and attentive. I don't know about you, but if it's anything longer than four minutes for a latte, I get pretty impatient. And he waited 40 years in a desert tending to sheep literally looking after mundane animals, pretty predictable animals. But he kept his eyes wide open, always waiting for what could be coming next. And I don't know about you, but I see this all the time in my life where my attentiveness and my alertness goes down. Like, I just, I'm increasingly becoming less and less patient. And here's some markers for it, like adverts for straight life for you. Like Netflix has done something to me where like anytime an advert comes on, I want to throw a shoe at the TV. Why do I have to watch an advert? Or, I don't know if you do this in traffic, where you're in two lanes, right? This is like, you'll realize this. And you subconsciously go to whatever lane has the less amount of cars in it, regardless of where it's going. And then you'll try to cut in in front of the traffic. You'll intentionally do that. If you're that driver, I don't like you, okay? Because that really annoys me. But I seem to do it all the time. We are accustomed to grow less and less patient. You see, he notices the burning bush. And we read this in Sunday school stories like it's some crazy, ridiculous story. And that is true to a certain capacity. But actually, bushfires and bushes catching fire wouldn't have been that uncommon. In fact, they probably would have happened every day. In fact, Moses probably witnessed it all the time, day in, day out, bushes catching fire and burning away. They were easily overlooked. But what is not common is a bush that burns but is not consumed by fire. And you can only realize that when you're attentive. You can only realize that when your eyes are wide open. From a distance, it is hard to see. Often in our day-to-day, we become less and less curious. It's just a nine-to-five. It's just what I'm doing in this moment in time. God invites us to embrace attentiveness and alertness to what he could be up to. Moses was never curious. He never would approach the bush and encounter the presence of God. The most amazing thing when we read through the scriptures, when we even read through the Old Testament, is that we realize that miracles are a combination of ordinary ingredients with God's extraordinary expertise. When God's super collides with our natural, sparks fly. Point number two, stay alert, be on your toes. Point number three has, little, has three little subchapters, and it's not necessarily what is said, but the order in which it is said. And I want to draw your attention to this. When Moses saw that he had gone over to look, God called from him within the bush. So whenever the Lord saw that Moses had approached the bush, he then spoke. Moses gave his attention to what was happening, and then the Lord spoke. Often our invitation to our destiny 
we think is going to be some mad interruption that's going to crash rapidly into our present. And for some of us, that may well be. But often what, how it actually comes is by us giving our attention to God, allowing him to speak in any capacity that he wants to, just simply giving our attention. The second point to this is that when God speaks, he always affirms who we are. Moses, Moses, he says it twice. Before he has done anything significant, God addresses him by name. A crucial point of stepping into what God has for us is understanding who we truly are. Identity is coherent with what we're being called and invited into. Point number three, when God gets your attention, you realize that your past does not define you and your future is brighter. Moses hid his face. Why? Most people and most scholars will agree that he hid his face because the glory of God that was before him, God up until this point had never revealed himself in this capacity to anyone. It is the most um, extreme example in which God has showed up to people at this point in time. And yes, he hid his face because obviously the glory, he hid his face obviously because he was afraid, but some people will also suggest that he perhaps hid his face for the reason in which he ended up tending to those sheep for 40 years. You see, the missing part between Pharaoh's palace and the desert is that Moses was actually a murderer. He killed an Egyptian guard who got in his way. And a bounty was put in his, on his head, and he was left with no other option but to run for his life. Whatever was going to come next out of, out, of, out of the burning bush, I'm sure Moses was absolutely petrified. And what is so significant is that when he refers to him by name, when he invites him into his future, what he's saying is that your past does not define you or have circumstance to control what happens next. But what I'm inviting you into, into your destiny, is bigger than that. And even though it's a small scene, it is not the overarching story and narrative of your life. And those small moments actually is what reveals the hidden power and authority in our destiny. Point number four and perhaps one of the biggest points in terms of understanding what destiny actually is, is that our destiny is always bigger than just us. Always bigger than just us. A marker of it being your destiny is that you'll probably be very afraid of it. You'll probably be a little bit intimidated by it. Chapter, and verse 7 says this, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people of Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them to the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out into the land of good and spacious land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Biblical destiny always originates with God. And when we realize that it's bigger than us, we also realize the currency in which that operates. You see, we, in, this, in this sentence alone, we get an insight of, and a revelation of the compassion of God. He hears the groans of his people. He's not deaf to it or ignorant to it. He hears it loud and clear. See, what Moses is being invited into is much bigger than just him. He is just a shepherd boy, yet he is the person who's being invited to lead his people, the people of God, out of slavery, in which they've been in for 430 years. Destiny is not just about you. It is not just about the individual. It's all about God and what he wants to do in and through you. We are simply channels for the purposes of God to flow through. It is not supposed to be attainable by yourself. And there's supposed to be a significant God gap. What I mean by a God gap, I mean there has to be a space in that if God does not show up, you're going to fall flat in your face. That's a pretty good marker that what God is calling you into is your destiny. That you need him to show up. That you need him to come through. That you need to put your dependency on him to move and to show up in that circumstance. 
God literally took a screw up and shifted the entire trajectory of a people group. And God's method of bringing hope is through a shepherd. He longs to use us. Point number five. Really simple. Be humble. Moses says this. After this great commission is given to him. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? As I said, until this point, God has never revealed himself in this capacity to anyone inside the Old Testament. This is the most explicit example of God speaking to humanity up until this point. And through his humility, he gains a revelation of the grace of God. He was a forgotten shepherd with a bad past and, frankly, not an incredible skill set. And the groans of the Egyptians are heard by God and met through him. The groans of the Egyptians are heard by God and met through him. That the beauty and the humility of it is that no longer was Moses just trying to make God a part of what he was doing. And one of the most humbling things is that we get invited to what God is doing. We get invited to be a part of what he is doing in our cities, in our towns, in our places, in our schools, in our, in our shops, in education, all around. We get invited to be a part of what he is doing. And this flows into point number six. When we understand our alignment, it empowers our assignment. I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought my people out of Egypt, you will worship God on, on this mountain. One of the most beautiful things in the journey of this scripture is that destiny is first a relational thing before it is reality. First a relational thing before it is reality. He makes himself known to Moses. He aligns him with who he is. He looks past his shortcomings. He looks past his mistakes. He identifies with where he's at in the present and he longs to move him into the future that he has asked him to come into. And we understand that. We begin to realize that the power is not found in our skill set or our brilliance or our ability. But our power is found directly inside the presence of God, allowing us to walk in the places and spaces and invite the presence of God to come and to show up. 